follow along in God's word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false, and you have perseverance, and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these are your words. May we hear what the Spirit has to say to our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This morning I feel something of a double pleasure as well as privilege of being with you this morning. First of all, just to be with you is always a privilege, but to have a pastor invite a fellow pastor to come and preach from the book of Revelation is really, really, okay, a privilege. I almost said danger, but it's not. It is a privilege. And this morning, your pastor has asked me 
to bring a message, not only this morning, but also tonight, from the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Revelations chapter 2 and 3. It's interesting, when we look at this, there's some background that we need to understand so that we can properly begin to not only understand what the message of Jesus is, but also how to best interpret and then to apply this message to our lives. If we go back to Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul begins that third missionary journey. And it's on that third missionary journey that he finds himself in Ephesus. And for the first three months of that visit in that city, he goes to the synagogue and he reasons with them about Christ Jesus. Three months. Doesn't take long before they begin to ridicule and reject his message. He leaves there and he goes right next door, basically, to the school of Tyrannius. There he begins to teach both Jews and Greeks, Scripture tells us. And it's in that context that the Apostle Paul begins a discipling process. Not only with the new believers there in Ephesus, but those who were coming to this great, great city, this ancient city that was a powerhouse for commerce in that day and time. Even though it was not the provincial capital, Pergamum would be that. It was still probably the greatest city in that region. And so from that perspective, many, many people would have come. And all of those who came, as Paul began to meet them and share with them, and as other believers began to disciple these people as they came into their city, they would go out. And in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, Luke tells us that in a two-year period of time, all of Asia heard the message of Christ. That's amazing to think about because what we understand from that is the other six churches that are listed here also began about that time from this church planting movement that the Apostle Paul centered there in Ephesus. So the church in Ephesus began there as well as the other churches. That's important because that happened somewhere around 54, 55, or 56 A.D. Now then, the Lord Jesus himself takes us 40 years into their future. It's now 95 A.D. Persecution is the word of the day for the church all across the world. Domitian has begun a tremendous, horrible persecution of Christians everywhere in his kingdom, the Roman Empire. John has been exiled to the island of Patmos, and there he finds himself on the Lord's day, and Jesus personally comes and begins to minister to him. And he says, John, write in a book what you see. And then Jesus reveals himself. John heard that voice, and it was so marvelous and so beautiful. 
He turned to see it and he saw a vision of Jesus himself standing there. Wow. I can't, I, I wish I could even come close to imagining what he saw. But he describes it in the best way he possibly can. And then Jesus begins to talk to him. He says, I want you to write to seven of our churches because there's something I'm about to do in the midst of every one of these churches. There's something I'm going to do. We need to see what it is that Jesus is saying here. We need to hear what Jesus is saying here. And we need to apply it. To really understand all that we are going to deal with in these verses today and tonight, this morning and tonight, we need to understand two very powerful things. First of all, and you go back to, Je- to Revelation 1.1, this is a revelation, a making known, pulling back the mystery of Jesus Christ. This is a message about Jesus. But in that vision that John saw in the closing verses of what we call chapter 1, this is no baby in a manger. This is no beaten, dejected, ridiculed, bleeding Jesus from the cross. This is the coming judge. This is Jesus in all of his majesty. This is Jesus in all of his power, in all of his worthiness, in all of his honor. Jesus is standing in the midst of his churches. And Jesus is that judge. He's not a small baby. He's not low. He is high and lifted up. He is our judge. Jesus and Jesus alone has that ability, that position. Because he is God. He is judge. That's the first thing we need to keep in mind as we read this. We need to take out of our minds the reality that Jesus is this friend. Oh, yes, he is. Don't misunderstand me. He is our friend. He is our brother. But we really need to separate that for just a moment because when Jesus comes, when he judges us, it's not going to be according to who he is. It's according to who we have lived in his presence. It's going to be about how we have lived for Jesus or against Jesus. He's coming as judge. But there's a second thing that we need to really, really fine-tune here as we understand this message. Jesus calls the churches lampstands. Yes, symbolic language, to say the least, but in every symbol that Jesus uses throughout the book, it has very, very significant meaning. And when Jesus calls these churches, the churches, lampstands... There's two things that we need to understand. 
First of all, they are no more than lampstands. In other words, the purpose of a lampstand was to show forth light. And in this particular case, the light that was to shine forth from these lampstands was Jesus. Not the people, not the church, but Jesus. The sole purpose of being a lampstand, the church, is to show forth the light of Jesus. That's it. But there's a second reality we need to understand as we look at, in particular, chapters 2 and 3. These lampstands are not individual candles. In other words, it's not, he doesn't call us candles. He calls us lampstands, meaning that they exist as a body to show forth the light. Yes, it's made up of individual candles, but when he says lampstand, he's talking about all of us as we come together as the body of Christ in a local manifestation, the church. He's talking about First Baptist Church, Waterloo. He's talking about us when he refers to these churches, our church, as a lampstand. Oh yes, it's made up of individuals. But what he is concerned about and what the message helps us to see here is that we exist as the body of Christ. That's how the world sees us and comes to know our Jesus when we fulfill our purpose as a lampstand. These seven churches, churches one and seven, Ephesus and Laodicea are in grave danger. That's why we're going to look at those two churches this morning. As we ask the question, how will Christ find our church? Churches two and six, Smyrna and Philadelphia, these churches, in all reality, Jesus is allowing a special attack of Satan against these two churches. He has nothing but good things to say about these two churches. And yet the odd thing is, even though they'll both go through persecution as all of these churches are, one church will suffer death. The other church, God's going to give a special hand of protection, an open door. Why would he do that? Tonight, we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at that and understand the message to churches Smyrna and Philadelphia. Churches 3, 4, and 5, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis. These three churches have unaddressed issues. In Pergamum, they are allowing false teachers. Thyatira, they have been affected by immorality. Sardis, Jesus calls a dead church, and yet only a few, there are a few who have not become soiled by their environment. These churches, even though it's only a few, again, it's about the lampstand. God is calling them to repent, to recognize what they need to do and do it. A lampstand. So this morning, what I want us to do is we look at chapter 2 and 3, look at Ephesus and Laodicea, is really follow a simple outline. First of all, the church through Christ's eyes. How does Jesus see these two churches? 
And it's the words that follow, I know your deeds. Second of all, the charge against the church. And in each of these two cases, he has a very stern threat that he brings against these churches. And then number three, Christ's remedy for the church. First, the church through Christ's eyes. In Ephesus, he says, I know your deeds. But listen to who, again, is addressing these words. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus introduces us to a reality of who he is in their midst. He is active. He knows everything that's going on. He is very loving. He is very caring. He's watching. He's waiting. I know your deeds. And what's interesting, if you were to summarize what we read then, of how he talks about what they're doing, there's really only one word that we could use, and that's the word zeal. This church had a real zeal for holy living. He uses phrases such as, Toil, perseverance, cannot endure evil men, put to the test, have not grown weary. These are right things. These are things that we should be doing. And they are doing, and they are right things. All of these sound good. Until Jesus makes that next statement. He announces, you have left your first love. This is a very strong reproach against this church. You have left your first love. Let's come to terms with what Jesus is saying here. Keep in mind, again, he's talking to the lampstand. He's talking to the church as that corporate body, not individuals in the church, but the corporate body. He says, I want you to understand, you have left your first love. He's talking about the purpose of Christ's love. He's talking about why he first loved us. He wants us to understand from John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus in his own words said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a purpose to my love for you and your love for me. Keep my commandments. Be obedient to my words. And if you back that up, right before Jesus says that in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus comes in, he says, I've got a new commandment, love one another. Now, you and I know that wasn't a new commandment, so what's new about it? Jesus says, even as I love you, that sacrificial love, that unconditional love, love one another. And to show this, to let the world know that you have my kind of love, my purpose of love in you. He says, by this shall all men know you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. You see, that's the first love that was left. The love of being church that is to love Jesus, period. I can only imagine in these early days 
when the church was first getting started, there in that very, very pagan city of Ephesus, the Christians, those who began to believe in Jesus Christ, had an uphill battle. I can only imagine many of them when they came to know Christ as Lord and Savior and they began to share it. They were shunned by not only their own families, but by business associates and life became very hard, very tough. They had to really be the church. They had to lean on one another. They had to care for one another. They had to go that extra mile one for another. They were truly band, a band of brothers and sisters who truly had a heart full of compassion and yet also had a ready, readily helping hand at the drop of a hat. They loved one another. They cared for one another. They worked together. You see, they built a fellowship in those early days. And then something happened. Something went wrong. We don't know what it is. We're not told. Forty years of being the church in Ephesus. They had moved away from loving one another to a reality of letting heresy hunting kill that love. What was now produced in that church? A very rigid, judgmental orthodoxy at the price of fellowship. Instead of being partners in faith, they exchanged that for bickering, backbiting, suspicion. That first love was gone. That zeal for Jesus, for loving one another, was gone. A couple of months ago, the Barna Group did a very, very extensive research survey of millennials, those who are basically 20s and 30s now. And the question was asked, how do you see the church? What one word would you use to describe the church in America today? And the one word, the one word that came up the most was judgmental. Brother Ronnie, are you saying that we're just to let sin go? That we're not to to deal with heresy? We're not to deal with with false teaching? Come on. What, What are you talking about here? But what is Jesus dealing with here? He's not saying turn your eyes, you know, blind your eyes to sin. He's not saying that at all. But what had been lost here? What is lost in our churches today? Fellowship, partnering. If I were to ask you how many of you have been in more than 10 members' homes in the last two weeks, 
I, I, I don't even want to ask. Because that's what Jesus is talking about. How are we going to be that body of Christ that people see the love of God in and through our lives? By this shall all men know you're my disciples. You have love for one another. How are they going to see that? If we don't spend time together, if we don't have that bond together, because it's in that koinonia, that fellowshipping with one another, that guess what? Matthew 18 really begins to make sense. Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if you see your brother in sin, how are you going to do that? How are you going to know that? In fellowship with one another. And that brother is going to respect you. That sister is going to respect you. And you're going to respect them because you're going to go to them and say, brother or sister, there's sin. I see something going on in your life. It's not in accordance to God's word. Let's deal with it. Let me help you. Let me pray you through this. Let me be your mentor. Let me help you in whatever way I possibly can. That's what we've lost. Instead, we, we, we conjure up these posses. Okay, I'm from the 60s and 70s. I'm, I'm not up to, you know, cool words. Posses. We, we gather people together, people that think like we do, and we go after that one person. That's probably what happened in Ephesus. They stopped being that loving, caring fellowship. And even when one or another sinned, rather than going to them and loving them and restoring them, they circled the wagons and went after them. Laodicea was very different. Jesus describes himself, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus comes in that next verse and he says, I know your deeds. But he says, no good words for this church. The only thing Jesus does is quotes the church. I am rich and have become wealthy. I have need of nothing. Laodicea was another major mega commerce place, city. It had a rich commercial center. It had a manufacturing of clothing that was world known. It was famous because of the black wool that was indigenous only to that area at that time. And they produced a line of clothing that everyone desired. There was also a famous medical school in the city that boasted of a cure for all kinds of ailments with our eyes. An eye salve that was world famous. What Jesus does say to this church is you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. He says you are lukewarm. What we need to understand about this is that this is not the action of taking something that is cold, and this is fairly cold, and boiling it so that it halfway there, there's kind of a tepidness, a, a lukewarmness. It's not that. It's right the opposite. What he's talking about here, 
is a faith and life that is dying down. They began with such a fire, with such a passion for the Lord Jesus. But because of the riches of the world, because of the things, their environment, they let the world infect them in such a way that they now say to Jesus, that's who they're talking to. They're saying to Jesus, I have no need of you. I'm rich in my own standards. This, I believe, and this is me speaking, this is a worse case than having never come into contact with the Word of God. John echoes that in chapter 2 of 1 John. James echoes that in chapter 4 of his letter. Jesus says, you're lukewarm. You're in danger of killing the testimony of this lampstand. The charge against the churches. In chapter 2, verse 5, Ephesus, Jesus says, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place. Chapter 3, verse 16, to Laodicea, he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, that will of I will spit you should read, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is seen in Ephesus as walking amongst the church. He's personal. He's intimate. He's there. But now then he comes and he says, I will come to you. He's not saying he's left and he's going to come back. He's saying in a word of warning, judgment is coming. And I'm giving you time to heed my words and repent. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth is the exact same message. I want you to understand the mercy that I am extending now. How long will he hold that mercy? Not long. Not long. If they do not repent. In chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus describes himself as the coming one once again. He's not only coming in judgment at the last day, but in many preliminary judges, judgments, as these threats tell us. In Ephesus, the light of the church would go out completely. In the years to come, would go out completely. The same would be true of Laodicea. By 55 AD, the church's light had gone out. Beloved, there are no Christian churches where these seven churches existed 2,000 years ago. Is Jesus serious? Yeah. They did not listen to him. They no longer exist as a body 
a local manifestation. That's hard to hear, isn't it? But keep in mind who's speaking these words. Judge. Jesus. If we, the church, fail to be His church, He will judge us accordingly. Christ's remedy for the church. He comes to the church at Ephesus, and He simply says, beginning in verse 5, Remember your first state. Remember what it felt like first to come to Jesus and then band together as brothers and sisters to do those block parties, to go with someone else, maybe two other people, and go out into the community or to the marketplace or to the park and just lovingly share your life with other people, introducing them to Jesus. Remember those days. Remember the passion you had. Remember the, the love that you felt, not only for Jesus, but for all people, so much so that you were willing to put yourself out there to trust Jesus, to work in and through you. And while you were speaking, you knew you had one or two partners, prayer partners, supporting and loving you, ready to help if they needed. Remember that first state. Remember what that was like. Literally, Jesus says, keep on remembering. Keep on remembering. And then he says, repent. Make a clean break with evil. Make a clean break with where you have failed Jesus, where you have let your life go to the point where you've left that first love. You don't really think about other people. You don't think about telling other people about Jesus. You've left that first love. And then he says, do. Do the works that you did at first. Remember what it was like and do those works. That calls for a repentance that takes action. In Laodicea, it's very, very similar. Faith is indeed obedience, but it is obedience of trust and confidence. The church at Laodicea had lost all confidence in Jesus. In reality, whether they did it physically or not, they had had a vote of no confidence for Jesus. We don't need you now anymore. We can take care of ourselves. We're rich in our own eyes. And Jesus says, I want you to remember something. I want you to remember you're not. You need me. And so he challenges them in that moment of remembrance. Buy from me gold. Buy from me white garments. Buy from me eye salve. Now that word buy does not mean that we can purchase our salvation or purchase our forgiveness. That's not what he's talking about at all. Rather what he's talking about is only the one who buys sees a need and has it met instead of saying, I have need of nothing. It's only when you go to the store and say, oh, I need that, and you purchase that, that you really begin to see a need met. And so Jesus says, buy from me. Not only do you see the need and are willing to come, you're going to come to me. 
You're not going to go to one another. You're not going to go to the famous school in our city. You're not going to go to the commerce that's going on in our city. You're going to come to me. You're going to buy from me. You're going to see a need and realize you can trust me. I will meet your needs. Then he says, repent. Jesus does something very powerful here in the closing verses of chapter 3. He reminds them, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. We don't like to hear those words, not from Jesus. But Jesus says, I want you to understand, I still love you. There's still time. Because I love you, I'm going to reprove you. I'm not going to let you be comfortable in your sin. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to make you aware that you're sinning against me. So here's what I want you to do. When you recognize that's going on, repent. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Don't wait. Don't wait till Sunday morning. Don't wait till Sunday night. Don't wait to call the pastor. Get on your knees then and do something about it, he says. Here's where it becomes very, very personal. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, okay, up to this point, it's all been about the corporate body. But I want you to see once again the love of our Savior. Jesus as Savior begins to speak, reminding us he's also judge. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's not a gentle knock. He's rapping on your door, your heart's door. Again, he's not going to let you be comfortable. He wants you to know there's something wrong going on. And when he does, he says, if anyone hears my voice. The good news there is what does Jesus say about his sheep? We're going to know it's his voice. And we're going to want to follow him. If anyone, he takes it back to one. In reality, when you look at chapters or churches three, four, and five, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, what you see is not all of the church was affected by sin, just a few. And Jesus in each of those three cases says it begins with the one. It begins with you as the church. Restore the one. Jesus is coming to a church that's about to experience a grave reality. And he says, if any man, you are important. Your faith can infect other people around you as well as affect. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, you become obedient he says, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. That dine, that is that main meal of the day for a Jewish family. It's not a snack. It's where the family comes together. They sit down as a family. And in a leisure time frame, they enjoy the meal together. Jesus says, I want that with you. He who overcomes, I will grant 
to him to sit down with me on my throne and I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He reminds us of the significance. Why should we do this? Because we're going to spend an eternity with Jesus. We're going to spend an eternity with Jesus. He's the one we need to fear and become obedient. Verse 22. And this is how he closes all seven letters. He who has an ear. And by the way, we have two of them. We have no excuse. He who has an ear to hear. Here's Jesus' point. Let him hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. When Jesus ascended back into heaven, and when Jesus comes again in the end of times, in that interval time, how does God communicate with us? Through the Spirit of Christ. What he's saying there is listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. Our question that needs to be answered this morning is not an easy one. How will the church, how will Christ find our church? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you recognizing your great love for us. Understanding while it's still today we have an opportunity to respond to you because you reminded us that our life is fleeting. We don't have all the time in the world. All we really have is this moment. None of us are perfect. We all have things in our lives that we really need to confess to you individually. But Father, as a church, we also need to humble our hearts before you. And do as your word has instructed us. Get connected with one another. Father, there may be some things that we're holding against a fellow brother or sister. Use this time to really break our hearts, to bring us not only to our knees, but to that awareness that this is about you. And Father, restore that relationship. Perhaps there's other things that are going on in our lives that we've put you on the back burner. And even though we're doing a lot of things, Heavenly Father, how does the community see us? Do they see our love? First for you and for one another. And Father, if there's one or more here today who have never trusted in Jesus, whose eternal life is holding and hanging in the balance, Father, may they simply step out in a moment when we begin to sing our next hymn and simply say to this preacher, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. These moments now are yours. You're speaking to our hearts because we're in your presence.
may we be found obedient. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.